BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome back to another episode of the Career Contessa podcast, your shortcut to being more fulfilled, healthy, and successful at work. I'm your host, Lauren McGoodwin, and today's episode is a really fun one. I'm joined by the Money with Katie creator, and we're discussing things like launching an online brand, especially during the time of COVID, the creator economy, and even some very important money mistakes that even us rich girls make. And now this is the Career Contessa podcast. Well, hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here, Lauren. So Katie, can you share a little bit about your background and how Money with Katie brand came about? Yeah. Like who the hell are you? Question. Yeah. Like who are you? Um, and why do you have any yeah, authority in money? <laughs> um, yeah. So I always joke that I created a you know brand about money for millennial women because I was a millennial woman that didn't know anything about money. And I found that the more I learned, A, I was learning it all from guys, coincidentally. I was kind of like, huh, that's weird. It's like all the great information out there is all coming from people that don't look like me and like don't talk like me and don't think like me and yeah. don't spend like me. And so that always felt like a shortcoming of sorts, but also kind of looked like an opportunity from the standpoint of, well, I really want to talk about this stuff. And I feel like, man, all of this information is so life-changing, which is cheesy to say, but it really is. I mean, knowing this stuff early enough in life and instituting it for yourself can really change the trajectory that you're on. So I was like, man, I got to share this with other people. And so that was kind of where Money with Katie came from. But anyone who knows this story already knows this. I was going to say, I I kind of also started it out of like pandemic anxiety. It was April of 2020 and we were like a month into it and we, none of us knew what was going to happen or what was happening. And I was home a lot for obvious reasons and just thought, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to make the URL. I'm going to start posting and I'm going to start sharing what I'm reading and what I'm learning about and the tips and tricks and hacks and information that I'm finding so intriguing. There's got to be other young women that care about this, right? Like there's got to oh, yeah. be other people that want to get better with their money. So that's kind of how it came to be. I I do feel like a COVID, um, if you want to call it a silver lining, was that people really did learn a lot about finance and like think about their finances and probably because so much of their finances were sort of changing during that time. But I, I think you're not alone with sort of this like it came out of the pandemic, but you had, I mean, you were obviously interested in the topic beforehand. It was a matter of like, am I going to turn this into a business exactly. or, okay. Yeah. And I had and, been into it for like three years prior where I okay. like first started just re like obsessing over the content, like avid content consumer of personal finance information. And then for like, I would say two years, I had been doing 
some light consulting. So like I'd have friends or acquaintances or coworkers that would just want like a second set of eyes on everything and would want to have someone that could kind of like walk, walk through with them, hold their hand, educate them about what they were doing, think through those problems with them. So I'd kind of been doing that and had had a lot of exposure already to like what women were dealing with. Cause initially it's like, you only know your own situation yeah. and you kind of assume that everyone has the same issues you do. But then after working with hundreds of women, I'm like, Oh, I've seen problems all across the gamut. You can also kind of start to tease out the common threads too, which is super helpful when you're trying to become a content creator and, and speak to those problems relevantly. Yeah, that's actually a good segue. I want to talk about content creation and the creator oh, yeah. economy because you're you're in it. You're you're so you money with Katie is a full time gig. Uh, yeah. So you're a full time creator. Uh, I guess we could say solopreneur, right? So can you talk <laughs> a little bit about that? I mean, I think there's people who probably listen to this podcast who might still have the side hustle or maybe are recent solopreneurs out of COVID or whatever. So talk a little bit about the creator economy and and what you've learned and and how that's going so far. That's a great question. Um, it's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> I'm like, if there's a visual that I can provide, it kind of feels like I'm driving a train and like laying the tracks down as we're going. <laughs> yeah. So I definitely don't consider myself an expert or even an early comer. When mm -hmm. I think about people like Lauren Everts Bostick, who started mm -hmm. Skinny Confidential in what was it, 2012? I mean, she was early. And you yeah. have people that even in the finance space started blogging in like 2009, 2010. Those people were early. Yeah. I feel like I'm like a really late to the party person here. But what I have learned is that there are a few kind of key things that I would, that I would chalk up like what has happened. And obviously the first is luck. I think to your point, launching a personal finance brand in the middle of a pandemic when everyone suddenly cares more about money. That didn't <laughs> that hurt. Helps. That, that <laughs> yeah. gave me a nice little tailwind of yes. like natural interest from people that had I launched it in 2019, maybe it wouldn't have gone anywhere because no, that, that concern and that care is not there. So right. that I think played a big role. And I definitely want to acknowledge the role of just being in the right place at the right time. Cause I think that's important, but I think the tangible things or the repeatable, replicable things. One thing that I think helped me a lot when I first started, I kind of told myself, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know who's going to read it. I have no idea how it's going to make money or if it'll ever make money. That really wasn't my intent at the time. It was more so I really wanted a project that was just mine. And so in some ways, I think I was blessed in how naive I was because I didn't come into it with these like crazy aspirations. I just like wanted to make it. And so if you're coming into it with the idea of it's like as a business, there are some pros and cons of that. Obviously the, the con, the obvious con being the pressure to monetize immediately or to have such a focus on monetization. But that was not really my focus because I wasn't thinking about it like a business. I was just thinking about it like a project, like a hobby. And so I told myself at the time, I'm going to give myself a year. I'm like, I'm going to write 104 blog posts, two blog posts a week, Monday, Wednesday. I'm going to stick to this. And if after that year, no one cares, no one's reading it, I don't even enjoy doing it anymore, then I will consider this idea fully trialed and failed and I'll walk away. But I think what happens sometimes is that we get this idea to do something, but we don't actually commit to what does success look like or 
how long am I comfortable doing this without making any money? What is the amount of output that I'm going to commit to, to see if this can be successful first? And instead, we just kind of plow forward. And sometimes plowing forward works really well. But for me personally, I'm such a neurotic overthinker that had I not committed to that time frame and been like, it doesn't matter what happens over the next year, I'm doing it anyway. Whether two people read it or 2,000 people or 200,000 people, I'm doing it. So Mm -hmm. I definitely think from a content creation or creator standpoint, I heard this amazing piece of advice from Alex and Austin of Morning Brew last year when I was listening to their How I Built This episode, where they basically said, content creation is an endurance game. If you agreed, the competitive edge is just existing longer than everyone else. Just doing it longer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Being consistent longer than other people, longer than your competitors are willing to be consistent. And so I think we expect that audience right away. And if it doesn't come, it's like, oh no, but that's where I think that consistency in that time frame helps kind of like get you over that hump of like, it's not even a question. I'm just doing it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That one I think was big. Um, the other thing that I think was really big was waiting to monetize for yeah, about a year. I didn't really have a sponsor for a year. I was started to sell a product, a very low ticket product, the Wealth Planner, but um, I didn't have a brand sponsoring my content for a full year. So that I think also helps. And again, if you're going into something that you truly love to talk about and write about, and it's a passion area for you, hopefully that won't be a discouragement. But I would say the third thing, like if, if, if consistency and timing is one and then, you know, waiting to monetize until you have an audience that is worth monetizing is two. I think number three kind of comes down to, um, when you're thinking about, or like conceptualizing your brand and, and what you want it to be, I think one question that I'll hear is like, how did you have the time management skills to do that? Or like, how did you work full time and write two blog posts a week and sell a product and like show up on Instagram and like all of those things. And what I always tell people is like, I don't think I had any extremely impressive time management. I think it was just something that I really liked doing because I enjoyed it and it was fun and it felt like a hobby. It, it was pretty easy to like get up (laughs) early and do it or like do it after work or do it on the weekends. It didn't feel like work to me. Mm -hmm. So and then that that feeling compounded even more when it was fun and it was making money. And then it was like, well, look, at like <laughs> that's it. Like that, this is what I'm going to do now. So I think those are kind of the three things that I gleaned from, from the past two years of doing this. And like I said, I'm definitely not an expert and I'm not even early, but those are the, <laughs> the standouts for but me. But I think that's good for people to hear because sometimes I think the something that can keep people from entering into something like this is they're like, oh, there's already so many personal finance bloggers. Like, why does there need to be one more? And no matter how many times you hear like, well, it's your your unique voice that you bring to the table. And like people, I don't think always buy that. And I think you're Mm -hmm. living proof of like, no, you can, you can join the group in 2020. We had corporate Natalie on a couple of weeks ago and like, Oh my God, are you serious? She's so funny. And like she created it also in 2020 and she's, you know, quote unquote gone viral. And I mean, you know, so it's, it's a good reminder that like you can start in 2022, 2020 or 2010, like some of these OG bloggers and still be doing it. And I think to your point, one of the things I will even say just with career contessa is consistency. Like it's comes down to your processes, your consist, you know, your consistency. And like, I do think I would, 
if someone was asking me for a piece of advice, I would say, just keep it simple. Like sometimes you feel like you have to like reinvent the wheel and you just don't have to do that when you're part of the creator economy or creating something new. And, um, of course, diversify your, your revenue streams. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Pandemic that that should happened. have been like the big flashing light. <laughs> yes. That's definitely my, I think that, but I think honestly, I think people come to that on their own when they're business yes. owners, because you start to realize it's like, Oh, I don't want to only make money from one source. I think that kind of happens organically. If you're know. like, if you're like me, if you're a neurotic overthinker, you're like, <laughs> Oh, I only have four revenue streams right now. I need eight to make yeah. sure that like, if stuff goes sideways, I'm still going to be okay. Well, also, I think your energy kind of goes toward one area, then goes to another area. So yeah. it's almost like you, you have them naturally because you are passionate or interested in different things yes. at different times. Like sometimes I'll go yes. really deep on podcasting or really deep on blogging, you know, and like, but then mm-hmm. another time I'll go really deep on courses. So it also kind of keeps things fresh for me. So totally. I, I, I agree with you. I think the revenue streams sort of become this natural thing, even though you are trying to create them, they are sort of a natural thing at times. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes time. I mean, I think that's, if I could go back and tell myself anything, it would just be like, don't feel like you have to do all of it all at once. You know, it's like you look at any good brand, skinny confidential, it's 10 years old. Yeah. Like, and she just launched a product like, I know. And you go back and look at like them in year one. It is, it is nowhere near, but that's like how it works. Like it's accretive. It gets better over time. If, I mean, I think we, we, overestimate what we can accomplish in like a week's time, but we really underestimate what we can accomplish in a year or five years. Yeah. Someone told me when I was starting, uh, they said, if you're not going to spend five years on it, don't spend five minutes on it. And I, and I think their point about that was like, if you're doing this, maybe you've kind of said this too, because you think in the next 30 days, you're going to go viral or you're going to be this multimillionaire, then like your expectations are very off. And there is this very glamorous part of the creator economy where people like to tell the success story. And that is fantastic. But I just want everyone to know the majority of us are just like doing something every day. And the email list grows slowly, the whatever mm-hmm. Instagram grows slowly. Like everything is just a slow moving pace, but the, yeah, the general build. theme is like progress and you're, you're a little bit more each day, you know? So yeah. I want to take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, Cozy Earth. We all know the importance of good sleep, especially after a long day of work. One way to optimize your rest and coziness is by having the right bedding. That's where Cozy Earth comes in. Cozy Earth develops and crafts high-quality goods with responsibly and sustainably sourced materials from the earth so that you can get the restorative sleep you need to curate your sanctuary and recharge from the comfort of your home. Made from soft and sustainable bamboo fabrics, Cozy Earth is softer than cotton. Plus, Cozy Earth is temperature regulating, which means it will keep you cool and comfortable all night long. Cozy Earth is also machine washable and their enhanced weave guarantees to not pill even after washing, which I love because one of the things I hate is when your cozy stuff starts to pill and then it doesn't look like cozy stuff you can wear out and about. And don't just take it from me. Cozy Earth has been featured on Oprah's favorites list four years in a row. And if you're still not sure, they have a 10-year warranty on all their products. Oh, and if you want to test out their sheets, you can. Cozy Earth offers a 100-night quote-unquote sleep test. That means you can try their sheets for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, you can send it back for a full refund. 
You've got to try these sheets. They are the softest sheets I have ever felt. And Cozy Earth provided an exclusive offer for our listeners today. You can get 35% off site-wide when you use the code CONTESSA. So that's 35% off, which is amazing when you use the code CONTESSA, C-O-N-T-E-S-S-A at CozyEarth.com. All right, now let's get back to the show. I'm Kat Sadler, and it sure is a beautiful day. After such a bleak year, it's time for some joy, and I cannot wait for you to hear my fresh and fun new show. I crack open about mom life, relationships, wellness, and beauty, all the things. Plus, I have provocative conversations with some of the most fascinating and famous faces in pop culture. I'm here to lift you up and make you think. Check out It Sure Is a Beautiful Day with me and you every Tuesday. So the last thing I want to talk about is, so you joined Morning Brew. So talk a little bit about that so people kind of can understand like opportunities for creators. Mm-hmm. And because I do think this is becoming a big thing where other oh, brands media are companies looking... noticed. They know, yes. mm-hmm. they know now that yes. like that's where the money is. Yeah. <laughs> media companies are sign- basically signing on creators. Like they are the talent. It kind of makes me think of like the talent agency kind of model where it's like, yeah, you are the talent, but you're the creator and you're under the morning brew umbrella. So what, it, what mm-hmm. does that mean? What does that look like? Why'd you choose to do that? Yeah, no, I think so. I think this is one of those areas where it's a sign that the potential for this is there and that you've already seen a lot of people that have made it big. And you've also seen people that, you know, there there's a bit of survivorship bias for sure, because there are certainly people that tried that it didn't work out for them. I I bet they don't regret trying though. You know, I think there's like some angle of that, that like, I prefer to focus on the success stories because I feel like it just, I'm a little bit woo woo, like expands my consciousness around like what is possible. And I think when you see other people like you doing what you want to do, it kind of on a subconscious level reaffirms for you that like, well, then I can do it too. But if you don't see anybody that looks like you doing it, it's like, it doesn't seem possible. So anyway, that aside, creator Mm -hmm. economy, media companies, acquisition. I think one thing that that's interesting is, is how I met the CEO of Morning Brew because I, I met him four years ago now on a whim on Twitter. Wild story. I like was reading Morning Brew at a stoplight, got pulled over for looking at my phone in a red light. <laughs> I was already obsessed with personal finance. So this like $150 ticket like ruined my week. <laughs> and I just tweeted. I'm like, I'm such a Morning Brew stan that like I just got pulled over for looking at my phone while driving. And I'm like going to pay this ticket because I like love morning brew so much. And the CEO DMs me and is like, Oh, Hey, like we're going to PayPal you the money for the ticket. That's hilarious. Like we love that you love the brew. I mean like, yeah, super organic, like outreach thing. So then we just like kind of became friends. Like we, I was like, Oh my God, like, thank you so much. And I like saw his name and knew that it was the CEO. So we start chatting. So we just kind of were like obliquely, like, you know how it is on Twitter. It's like people you follow, you've never met them. They don't know you. You don't know them, but like, you kind of know who each other is. So last fall, Money with Katie was having like a banner year, which really makes sense because 2021 was the first year where I was like monetized at all. So like <laughs> bar was low, but yeah, like, yeah. it was, you went from it a was, zero to hundred percent. Yes, I was like, it was a thousand percent year over year growth, you know, <laughs> yes. but it was like, so it was doing really well. And so I was like confident at this point that like, all right, I've seen the power of this. I've, I now believe in my own ability to generate income as a self-employed person and like believe in my concept. 
So I think at this time I was working for Facebook. So I had a pretty good job in tech, but I thought, man, if by June, 2022, Money with Katie has made at least $25,000 each month. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go all in. Well, around the same time, I was kind of coming to this decision and like formulating this idea of like the risk tolerance threshold that I was okay with. Austin, the CEO, reaches out to me and he's like, Hey, we're trying to like, we're trying this new thing. We're trying to bring creators in house. We're really interested in personal finance. Can we talk? Well, I think the way that a lot of media companies are doing this is they're trying to find creators that have very nascent followings. So not people that already have a million followers in yes. some cases, maybe, but people that want to be a creator that like mm-hmm. have the passion and have the personality and have the perspective, but don't yet have the audience because yeah, they used point, to be called micro bloggers or something. Yes. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. People that like maybe have a thousand followers. Right. Yes. And they're but just like little. super engaged. Yes. Super. And usually super like niche too. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like, it's like subject areas where it's, it's not like a lifestyle blogger, you know, it's like an ex, a blogger that only covers like Microsoft Excel, like yeah, things like that. I was just thinking that example. <laughs> so yeah. like, yeah, super niche. And they want to basically take the media model, the traditional media model and install the creator inside of that. And then say, you just go nuts. We'll pay you a good salary. You create to your heart's desire. We'll do everything else. We'll handle the ad sales side. We'll handle the merchandise, like all the things that you would think as a creator, it's like, these are things you kind of have to learn on your own. If you get an incubator a little bit, it's like, why go out and hire your own person to do ad sales when we can have one ad sales person sell across the quote unquote creator network that we're creating. Yeah. Yep. So I thought it was a really interesting, I was very torn though, because at this point I had a bit of a following already, like 25,000 followers and I had a brand that I felt like had some brand equity and I had had a really good sales year, like multiple six figure sales year. So I was like, not super keen on it at first. Cause I was like, what am I going to be giving up by like basically selling my brand to a larger company? And what I ended up, you know, I really agonized over it, over it for like a month. And we went back and forth so many times, like there were plenty of times where I was like, I'm asking for like ridiculous shit right now. There's no way he, the next email I get from this guy is going to be telling me to like piss off and like (laughs) go build money with Katie myself. If I'm like, love it so much, but that didn't happen. Like they kept, it was a very, it ended up working out really well. And so the final kind of like decision point though, was I had someone tell me, would you rather have a hundred percent of a grape or 25% of a watermelon? And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and it kind of clicked where I yeah. was like, yeah, they have 4 million subscribers. They have the infrastructure in place. They're doing $60 million in revenue a year with newsletters. This is probably what's going to actually put money with Katie on the map. And like more than that, I'll actually get to learn from yeah, them say, and, and have like their mentorship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it had gone from me yeah, figuring out on my own, intuiting my way through it to actual professional help. So that was kind of how yeah. that played out. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, we're part of the Dear Media Podcast Network and it's like, it's kind of like that. And, you know, I really appreciate all the times I get to ask 
someone at Dear Media a question. I didn't even so know nice. that when I'm plugging Lauren Everett. Yeah, by the way, Lauren wow. Everett. Hey, Lauren, yeah. what's up? I'd love to come on your show. <laughs> Call me Lauren, Her, Michael, yeah. please. Their their show really does move the needle. My I uh, inter- They were very nice and interviewed me uh, when my book came out. And so I just want to put that out there. Like they're incredible. Um, and oh my Michael God. is basically my bo- my Dear Media boss. Is but, he? Yeah. Oh my God. Well, he this runs is so Dear crazy. Media. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I know he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. I used to listen to that podcast every single day on the way to work. And I always thought it was really cool when they were like talking, like I kind of remember when they were like launching it. That yeah. is so awesome. Wow. Yeah, how no, they, they do really good um, like flashbacks of like, this is what it was like. And and now we're here. And I, I think that's, I really like that. And people probably don't know, but like creating episodes or creating content like that takes a long time because you have to yeah. really do find before and after things. But, um, I think as like listeners and people who are watching, it's, it's, it's good motivation to your point of like, yes, it's the proof of concept of like, stick with yes. it. You're doing the right things. And, you know, there, there is no such thing as an overnight success. And I have this saying that I use a lot about the glitter and the glue. And I'm like, people think, brands are made out of glitter, but it's all glue, which is like not glamorous. <laughs> it's not, you know, this nice thing, but it's like what holds it together. And like mm-hmm. the glitters, like the PR write up the, you know, the, to be honest, like sometimes the podcast interview or whatever yeah. the presence, like those are really nice, but what holds it together is showing up every day on Instagram, writing the blog post when you're like, I don't know how to you know, phrase this paragraph in any other way, but I have to do it, you know? So, um, and I do think it's a discipline. I think it's a lot. You were talking about time management. I would say it comes down to just like self-discipline and luckily if you like what you're doing, a lot of times that's a little easier. I think that's the cheat code, right? It's like, it's a lot easier to be, make it as easy on yourself as possible, right? Like don't go out and try to be a content creator about something that you just feel lukewarm about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, it it will come to you (laughs) like, like I remember thinking really hard about an an idea and then career contest that came very naturally to me. So if that, if that helps anyone who's trying to think of what's their thing out there, um, I think this has all been, we basically just went through like a mini business school lesson, but now we're going to go through. Also, can I, I want to make a book recommendation. This will take 10 seconds. Big magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. If you feel like like kind of if that resonated with what she just said about like it's going to come to you, that book will change your life. It's like all about ideas and like how like our genius is not really ours and like how to cultivate it. Oh, my God, it's so good. So if you're that's the place you're in, it's so good. You say that because people are like your podcasts or even our webinars are like they're basically becoming like uh, these book club recommendations. And I love that you did that because I I read a lot of stuff like that. And sometimes I'm like, people are sick of these recommendations, but that is a really good recommendation. Um, so good. Okay, well, thank so, you. Thank you for allowing that. So you guys probably are getting this, but Katie's also a financial expert. So we're going to ask her some money questions on here, namely mistakes, because my favorite, I, I like to think of things as like, I think when it comes to my finances, I'm I'm just sort of getting hooked and like learning this and I'm lucky because I I have this job. So I'm like naturally kind of in it. But I think a lot of times I'm like, okay, well, what are the mistakes I definitely don't want to make? So sometimes it's easier for me to hear what I shouldn't do than it is for me to hear the advice of all the things I should do. So yeah, let's go over the five money mistakes that you've put together. So people have this as a takeaway. In addition to you guys, Katie has a podcast you can listen to and a brand. So you can, you can get obsessed with this as well, but let's start with your first one. So you, your, your first mistake is about starting too late. So let's talk about that. Yes. So I want to preface though, if you're listening to this and you are 50 years old and you're like, Oh my God, I'm being called out right now. 
That's absolutely not what this is about. This is about starting too late because you've been told that you cannot invest until you earn more money. I don't know where this idea comes from, but I know it exists because I felt this way too. I remember my starting salary. It was like $50,000 in 2017. I remember thinking, okay, well, you know, I'm making some money now, but I don't think I'm ready to like start being risky with it. Right. Like it, it all seems so risky. It felt like I was putting something on the line by starting to invest. And I was like, no, 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 I should, I should wait until I'm making more. I should definitely wait until I have more money to start investing. That is basically the complete opposite of how investing works. That's like saying, I'm going to wait to go to the gym until I start getting fit. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> uh, it's like, that's how you get more money because the the reality is that investing and basically using your cash to buy assets that are going to go up in value, whether those assets are stocks or those assets are properties that you're renting out to other people or those assets are small businesses, whatever you're exchanging your cash for, that asset that goes up in value, that is investing. But you'll never be a, this is just the reality, unless you're making millions of dollars a year, you'll never be able to get rich just by working for a paycheck and then putting it in a savings account. You need the tailwind of an asset that has that upward mobility, so to speak, to work for you. And that's why people will say like, you know, I want my money to work for me. What they mean by that is like, I want to put my money into something that then that money is going to take on a life of its own and go earn more for me. And so again, it can take on many forms. Investing doesn't just have to mean the stock market. I like the stock market the best because I think it has the lowest barrier to entry. Yeah, I think it requires the least amount of knowledge. You can literally with $10 and an internet connection, go sign up for a robo-advisor and get a professionally managed portfolio in 10 minutes. So like, that's why I prefer the stock market, especially for people that have never invested before. But there are so many different paths. It just comes down to like this idea that you can't invest until you have more is such a lie. That's how you, yeah. that is literally how I, you get more. I money. think people have this thing where they're like, I can't invest unless I have, you know, $10,000 to put into something. It's like, you can do it with $10. Like yes. you can do it with 10. Like there's no, you yeah. can do it with 50 cents probably. I don't know. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that's a, I agree. Um, Okay. What's your next uh, mistake? Number two, you see uh, people making. So my second mistake, again, it's like all of these came basically from like things that I did. (laughs) So I'm like, I know that they happen, especially because, especially because I consider myself now someone that's very educated about personal finance. I spend 80 hours a week learning about it and writing about it. So I'm like, I know a lot now at this point, but um, the second mistake is automatically assuming that buying your place of residence is preferable to renting it and or overspending on housing and particularly overspending on a primary residence that you are purchasing that is going to overextend you. Now, the reason that I see this as like such a powerful myth is because it's ingrained in American society that homeownership is always better. And like, I can come up with scenarios in which homeownership would always be better in the sense of like, you're definitely going to be in that place for 15 years. And like the cost of living is low and you know, whatever, like I can, I can like find ways to back up that claim. But what's the reality is that that claim survives from a time when our economy and our housing market was very, very different. And so there's this thing called the price to rent ratio. It is 
unbelievably helpful for localizing this decision and helping you determine, is it actually better to buy if I can afford to, or should I keep renting? And so what it basically looks at is it takes the cost, the median cost of annualized rent in an area. So like my rent in Colorado is $3,000 a month. We pay 3,000 for a three bedroom house. So $36,000 per year. And then the median cost of a home in that zip code. And it basically looks at how many years of rent could you pay for in order to buy that house? Like how many years of rent would you have to give up to buy the house? So you have places like Detroit, Michigan, where I think the price to rent ratio is like seven. I mean, it's like crazy low where with seven years of rent, you could own the house outright. And so like in that case, it's probably better to just buy the house. Then you have places like San Francisco where the price to rent like ratio years. is 50. <laughs> yes, you yeah. can rent for 50 years or you can buy the house. And so at that point, you're kind of like, oh, well, if I can rent for 4,000 or own for 11,000 a month, which is the reality of a price to rent ratio where you know it's a $4,000 rent or a $2.4 million home, $11,000 a month, you're probably going to want to rent. So I love the price to rent ratio for figuring out like locally what makes sense for you. But I think the other side of this, and this is particularly the side that I was unaware of when I lived in Dallas and wanted to buy a condo for $250,000 when I had $12 in my checking account. I don't know like why I thought that was like, I should do that, but it's the property taxes and the insurance and the ongoing maintenance and the mortgage interest that people yes. don't take into account. So they think, oh, it's either $1,000 towards my house that I'm owning and it's an investment and it's blah, or it's like $1,000 towards rent, which is just throwing money away. Yeah. But it's like that $1,000, if that's your mortgage payment, that's just part of the story. Like yeah. you've got more costs on top of that. Typically you can estimate like four to 5% of the home's value every year that you're going to be paying in costs that are not building equity. So yeah, there's no property oh, manager to call when you own a house. And right. Like, Something's like, broken. <laughs> exactly. So, right. So there's, it's kind of just this idea of like, I don't discourage homeownership. I just tell people go in with your eyes wide open and actually run the numbers and make sure that it's the better move. Cause if you're going into it thinking this is going to be a great investment, we're going to make so much money on this. It's like when you actually factor in all of the costs, especially because the transaction costs are so high, you can pay thousands of dollars just in closing costs. Sometimes the returns are not what you think they are. So if you're not, if you're not actually like really excited about owning a home, there's nothing wrong with renting. So that's, that would be my mistake number two. Yeah. I like that. And also as a society, let's celebrate people moving to a new apartment or not always, you know, getting married, having a baby and buying a house. Like let's celebrate other things. The standard path. (laughs) Yeah, I know. She's Louise. Um, Okay. Number three is about low interest debt. So this is definitely the opposite of what I've heard a lot. So yeah, tell us what this one is. Yeah. So my mistake number three is paying off low interest debt too quickly. And I know that that kind of sounds backwards. It's like, wait, wouldn't you want to pay off your debt quickly? But what it really comes down to is opportunity cost. So when I'm talking low interest debt, typically what's included in this would be student loans, mortgage debt, or car notes. Credit card debt, another story that's almost always going to be high interest. You're going to be paying an, a criminal like amount of interest. 22%. Yeah, like at a nice. minimum, right? Yeah. Like it's insane. It's, it's crazy. So, so, but I'm talking like if you have debt of any kind that has an interest rate between three, 6%, three and 5%, that is what I would consider low interest debt. That's pretty cheap money, right? That you borrowed and, and hopefully you used it to do something that's going to drive your life forward, like go to college or buy a home or buy a car. Like all of these things are good things. And we shouldn't be shaming people for having debt for, you know, going to college. That's ridiculous in my mind. But 
So with the low interest debt though, the opportunity cost, if you have an extra thousand dollars a month, I'm just making, I'm using big round numbers so that my mental math is not embarrassing, but (laughs) if you have an extra thousand dollars a month and you have the option to invest that money in the stock market or to use it to pay off a loan that has a rate of 3%, you you feel like you're saving money because you're going to save on interest by paying it off faster. But the part that you don't see is that had you taken that $1,000 and invested it in the stock market and made 7, 8, 9, 10% on it, you actually would have made more money yeah. by kind of a long shot than you paid an in interest on the mm-hmm. loan. So I always like to look at the interest rate to let that guide me. If it's under 7 I'm usually like, I'm going to let that ride. I'm going to make the minimum payments and like pay it off over time, fixed rate loan and invest instead. Whereas if it's over seven, I'd be like, okay, now I'm feeling a little bit more like I should be like getting rid of this a little bit quicker. And I'm using seven because that's the average real rate of return in the stock market when annualized over time. I love it. My husband will sometimes do these little exercises for me. He's like, so here's what you could do with that cash. If you left in this, you know, if you invested in the stock market, this is what it will turn into. Yes. And I'm like, it is amazing. Like, you're yeah. like, and like, so sometimes just do the exercise of yeah. like a 7% return. Let's just take that and just, I'm a visual learner. And so I have yeah. to see the visual piece of that because again, I hear the word debt and I'm always like, ew, no, get it away. You right. know, so. Um, Which by the way, is such an internalized response. Yeah. Like we've all been socialized to think that debt is very bad. And it's fascinating because when you actually look at how the ultra high net worth. Yeah, use they debt, always have debt. Yeah. They use it to get yeah. richer. And yeah, it's like, wait a second. Why, why are we being told that this is some it's like so dirty, true. terrible thing? And Jeff Bezos is borrowing against all of his money instead of like realizing any capital gains taxes. It's like, it's just kind of funny when you start to like learn about the stuff and you're like, was this a trick? Like, have we been kind of like misled here? The amount of times I've said like they should teach personal finance to all of us (laughs) instead of all the other things is like, I, at this point, there's no point in saying that anymore. Um, So, okay, let's go through mistake number four and five if we can kind of put those together. Okay, cool. So mistakes four and five. Mistake number four is assuming that if you've got money left over at the end of the month that you've got a solid financial plan. This was like, AKA me circa 2017. I'm like, "Ah, I've got enough money to pay the bills. I'm good. Same with mistake five, holding too much money in cash savings, AKA as long as you're kind of like putting some money in savings every month, thinking that everything's going smoothly. What these both boil down to at their core is that there's no actual plan in place. You're not actually enacting something that's going to make you wealthier over time. You're just kind of on the hamster wheel, right? And that's that's what we want. We want to get you off the treadmill. And especially if your lifestyle is expensive, if you've kind of like scaled up, you've got the lifestyle inflation thing going on. Lifestyle creep is real, you guys. It's so real. (laughs) I am living proof. I'm like, I started making more money. I was like, I'm going to hire a chef, but um, (laughs) which is like fine. Like you can like spend more as you make more, but you just want to be cognizant, right? So I always joke, it's like being, handcuffed to a Peloton treadmill with Cartier handcuffs. You're like, this looks very chic, but I am terrified. So you you really want to have a plan in place. And I think we get a false sense of security. If we have enough money to pay our bills, we think everything's cool. You want to know how much your life costs. You want to have investments that you're making every single month so that you're paying future you while you're enjoying present you. So Mm -hmm. that would be mistakes four and five. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. And like, I also would encourage everyone to look at their 401k. It's amazing to me how many people actually don't max that out. They don't even do the matching. Like 
again, maybe COVID didn't spur this in you, but hopefully you're having this moment of like, I can figure out the finance stuff and I can do these things. And mm-hmm. I find that it's also incredibly empowering to be like, this is what I'm doing with my money and make you know certain agree. decisions. Like for me, I, I don't know why it's just like, I get a high off of doing my taxes. I'm like, I know where every dollar is and what everything <laughs> is happening. It, kind of sucks, but I'm like, at the end of it, I'm like, I, know. I feel like I know what's happening in my life. And I think to your point about like, you were a millennial woman and there wasn't a lot of other women speaking to you. I was telling Katie this before we got on that, like I got introduced to her brand and I've been really liking it. Partially. I like your voice and tone, but also I just, I want someone who simplifies it because this mm. stuff I think has always seemed very intimidating and it's, it's not, it's like, you're totally capable of doing these things. It, you can, you can go and set up an account right now. And sometimes I remember the first time I set up an IRA, just feeling very like, okay, I got to sit down. I got to have coffee. I got to have this. Like I thought I was going to be like there for hours, you know, and it lasted like 10 minutes. And I was like, and you're like afraid. It's like, I don't want to press the wrong button and like, totally. I remember calling the guy. I like called the guy and I was like, I just want to make sure that this is, I did this all right. He's like, it's fine. You know, like it was like, why did you wait on hold for 30 minutes to talk to me? But well, yeah, but the way you feel that way or the reason you feel that way is because money is power. Money is control. Mm -hmm. Like wealth is power. That's just the reality. You live in a capitalist society. That's how it is. And if you are in control of your own money and feel like you're in the driver's seat and you're growing it and making decisions for yourself, it feels so like any consternation, any fear that you feel in crossing over that hurdle to get to the other side is going to be so worth it. Because I think we all underestimate how much it eats at us when we feel like that shit is not under control. Like that you, it's impossible to have any other type of freedom unless you have financial freedom, because you cannot be creative and empowered and you know, realize your full potential. If you're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay rent. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. And I think it's very empowering that, um, there are so many women who have kids who are finding ways to make their own money and whatever, whether that's a side hustle, corporate job, going back to work, whatever it is. I, I think that, and I think a lot of it stems from that of like, I want to have this power over my future and not feeling like I'm powerless in the decision-making of that, which is like, this is like a whole other episode, but, um, Katie, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us today. Like I said, this has like been part, you know, business school lesson, part money lesson. So people are getting a lot of literal bang for their buck with this episode. And, um, where can people follow you, find you all the, all the links? Yeah, absolutely. So make it pretty easy on you. It's moneywithkatie.com, moneywithkatie on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. And oh, my cat just fell off the window. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> oh God, what's happening over there? Um, and then the Money With Katie show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, it's going to be there. Um, and yeah, we break down complex topics. We make them fun. We make them easy. We you know, throw in some expletives and some <laughs> yeah. like pr- provocateur, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. So if you're a podcast person, the money with Katie show might be a good, a good one to add to your rotation. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the career contestant podcast. Please remember to rate our show and leave us a review. I know that's annoying, but the algorithm likes the reviews and then it says the show is good. Let's recommend it to other people. So it makes a huge difference in our lives. And thank you to all of you who have been doing it because we have been getting more listeners, which is great. 
And if you're ready to finally sit your boss down and ask for that raise, but you're intimidated on where to start, we can help. Our newest online course is called Asking for a Raise 101, and we cover everything you need to determine your market rate, how to ask your boss for that raise, like literally word for word what to say, and what to do after you ask, including things like what to do if they say no, or what else can you ask for? Your enrollment includes lifetime access to the course video tutorials, workbooks, scripts, and more. Learn more about Asking for a Raise 101 in the show notes.